We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Today we talk with Eric Hansen about using virtual reality to understand history and prehistory. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast with myself and Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Alan, who do we got today? We have Eric Hansen who is uh, one of the world's foremost experts on virtual reality and the use of virtual reality to better understand both uh, history and prehistory and work with various uh, clients to uh, better employ ways to outreach to the general public, the academicians, et cetera, and interpret and embellish our understanding of native indigenous people around the world. And with that, I want to introduce Eric. Welcome, Eric Hansen. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Alan and Chris. Uh, uh, virtual as this may be, I would say. Yes. So, um, uh, Eric, uh, who, who do you work for? Uh, actually, I do. I wear a number of hats in my career and uh, have over uh, the length of it. But currently, I'm on uh, faculty at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. And that's I, the University uh, of Southern California? Oh, that's right. I should uh, specify yeah. that. Okay. And uh, started, I've been, I guess, uh, on faculty there for probably about 15 years now. And I started off by uh, building up the visual effects curriculum. Uh, oh. My uh, The bulk of my career has been in visual effects and feature film. 
building kind of fictitious worlds and such. And I'll, I'll speak more about that and how it relates to what I do now. But uh, in any case, so that's one of the uh, one of the primary things that I do is and I and at this point, I lead all the curriculum in what we call cinematic virtual reality, which is more kind of narrative storytelling uh, aspects of VR, as I'll refer to it, um, as opposed to a gaming type of application. So something that has the nature of cinema embedded within it, but again, can be an extension of immersive storytelling. You have your own business, don't you, Eric, as well? Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say about, uh, I kind of left feature film behind about, I think, 14 years ago now. And uh, that was from a fortuitous campfire discussion, kind of a a humorous and, and, uh, should I say, lively discussion I had with who became my business partner, Greg Downing. And we were both uh, lamenting the fact that uh, that visual effects had become a bit of a, it started off as a way to tell better stories. And I should inject that Greg and I were some of the first digital artists to work in visual effects. It's a hundred year old field, but we were uh, in the mid eighties, kind of the first ones to utilize computers for that. And in in that, uh, but anyway, back to the campfire, we were discussing how uh, exciting it was in the early days to see what computer graphics could do for the field and tell better stories. But we got to the point where it kind of felt after about 18 years of doing this, that it became uh, just a vehicle to tell really bad stories. <laughs> and we, we ended up uh, just kind of lamenting this fact. And Greg, at one point, blurted out, he said, you know, I am so tired, sick and tired of building New York City and destroying it. And I think I've done that <laughs> four times now. And I thought about it, and I counted the films that I've done New York on, and there's about another four or five. So between us, we've destroyed New York about eight or nine times. Now, I was on a panel at one point with uh, uh, an individual named Matt Gratzner, who's a well-known effects uh, practitioner that builds models, and he has built New York repeatedly for all kinds of major films. And I said, Matt, uh, I said, I, I think I've only destroyed it eight times. How many times have you destroyed it? And uh, he said, I can't even count. So anyway, so we, we ended up just saying, look, you know, we're both impassioned about the outdoors and cultural heritage and meaningful real world subjects and this world of working in fiction and fantasy uh as i did for many years uh began to wear thin and uh but i'm you know myself and greg were still hugely passionate about the use of the tools to again tell deeper stories and to use the power of the evolution of computer graphics and uh, the other thing is we've always been very involved with the what should i say the evolution of them or kind of the innovative use of graphics, uh, which is what uh, visual effects was with computers in the, the early days. Uh, it was a very inventive and kind of, uh, you know, high exploration time. Very exciting. Tell us a bit about your background in working for Hollywood and what movies you worked on and other things that would, that I guess are the public, the people that are listening would have uh, some knowledge of. It would, I think it would help in terms of contextualizing your discussion? Well, uh, my education is actually in the field of architecture. I have a degree in architectural design. So I I worked for different architecture firms, and I won't belabor that, but I ended up down here in Santa Monica, California, working for a very large firm and uh, kind of heading up visualization. So using computers in architecture, and I can say I was one of the pioneers of of, uh, doing visualization work in that field too. 
That led me down here to Los Angeles. But in any case, uh, we did a renovation of the MGM uh, movie lot, which is now Sony Pictures. And I had put together this little animation and peppered it in with famous stars, et cetera, from the 30s and kind of did a little Hollywood-esque uh, treatment of our proposed design. And the head of Warner Brothers came in and took a look at it and this, uh, you know, studio boss kind of guy. And he cracked a smile as he was watching this little animation. I had a Benny Goodman soundtrack. And then he, at the conclusion of it, he turns to me and he points his big, fat, stubby finger at me and he says, son, you ought to be in the movies. And that, <laughs> <laughs> so that was my beginning That's of hilarious. my Hollywood career. And I approached him later. You and ought I said, to be well, in pictures. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was that kind of thing. And I said, well, you know, I, I wouldn't mind moonlighting for you. So I ended up moonlighting on a very early Batman that Warner Brothers was doing. I think it was Batman Forever, if I'm not mistaken. But, uh, uh-huh. but I kind of set my sights on that. And in another year, year's time or so, I made the full switch from, from architecture into feature film. And I, I worked at Digital Domain, which is a legendary effects house in the early days, uh, started by Jim Cameron and some others. And participated on uh, a little bit of Apollo 13, and then uh, The Fifth Element was kind of the the first big film that I contributed heavily to. And I uh, still get fan mail every now and then for that film, which is crazy. So, uh, but it was kind of a very fun... Did you work on Lilu? No, actually, we worked with Lilu. Yeah, Mila Jovovich was in the office quite a bit. (laughs) And uh, yeah, there's stories I'm a fan of Lilu. Yeah, yeah, many people are, actually. And uh, I'll tell you one thing about that film is I thought it was going to be, you know, as I interviewed, I heard the word uh, Luc Besson in science fiction. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to be, you know, groundbreaking, just monumental. And joined on. And then uh, we didn't know it was this kind of campy, comedic satire. So as we're getting the uh, dailies in, we're like, what is, what's this big McDonald's truck doing in here? And, you know, what is that (laughs) costume that Mila Jovovich has on? What is this all about? So it kind of took us all for surprise. But anyway, that kind of began my career. And that, that uh, from there, I, I just went all over the place, went to Walt Disney feature animation for a few years and Sony Pictures and all these other uh, effects houses and worked on a number of major films. What kinds of things did you do for Fifth Element in terms of what specific uh, aspects of that production were you responsible for? Uh, that was the design and the execution of the digital cityscape of Manhattan. Oh, that was wow. one of my New York features. In that case, yeah, they didn't really have an art director. They had one art director, and he didn't. He he was happy to give me the uh, kind of the goods on designing it and ex- and running a team to realize those shots. So I had a I had a blast. I thought this was you know the the most fun I've ever had and gotten paid for. So it was, uh, it was a fun time. But I'll tell you one thing that kind of bridges it over to, to uh, the natural world was I ended up working on Castaway, Tom, Tom Hanks's film over at Sony. And mm-hmm. we did a lot of the natural landscape of Fiji, of uh, the island. Well, it wasn't Fiji in the film, but that's where they shot a lot of it. Uh-huh. And um, that island actually is not really in existence. Almost all of that was digitally created. So that was my first opportunity to do a natural environment kind of move away from my architectural roots and that uh, that was a actually a, again a big effects film nobody knows that it is but it's a I, I show before and afters in my presentations and people are always shocked at, at just you know how fictitious that creation is so in other words in other words it was your responsibility to fictitiously electronically digitally create this environment that didn't really exist 
Yeah, that's, that right. They would, they, that's right. And they would shoot it. And when we see it on film, we think it's real. Yeah, they shoot just a minimal amount of it. As a matter of fact, the big summit shot where Tom climbs to the, the this high peak and looks down was actually just a little nub of, uh, of ground over on PCH just up the road from him. In That's Malibu. Amazing. So they, uh, yeah, there's some pretty extensive uh, kind of fabrication, digital fabrication that we did. But again, I bring that up because that that got me very intrigued about representing the natural world, and um, which I've always been a very impassioned outdoor. I don't, I don't know if I would say explorer, but I've, it, you know, always had outdoor activities throughout my life. I was a, a advanced hang glider pilot for decades. And flew all all manner of uh, pretty advanced types of sites all across the Southwest, and uh, I've always backpacked and uh, been a photographer, and you know I've just always the, the outdoor life I've, has been my passion for you know my entire lifetime. But it was always separate from this life of working in feature film. Back to the uh, campfire, so we can move on. That was the a pivotal moment where we just said, "Look, let's let's redirect our activity, our careers, to represent the natural world and all the the wonders that exist there, and you know, start our own company and maybe take a breather from feature." And that's what we did. And that was about fourteen years ago. Now, Eric, why is that so unusual? You've told me that that when we talk about virtual reality and even think about that particular strategy or that technology. Dealing with the natural world with VR in the way that you've done or the way that you and your colleague have done is rather atypical. Am I correct? Yes, in some manner. Um, and, you know, one thing is I, we start to talk about archaeology is I make no pretense of uh, having a, a great amount of knowledge of the field, but I work, have partnered with archaeologists for many, many years and currently, I'd say in the last uh, eight years, probably extensively worked on archaeological subjects. So, uh, and then my passion of rock art has uh, led me to meet you, Alan, on, uh, to join the uh, California Rock Art Foundation. Absolutely. And uh, so that, that's another aspect of my interest. It's kind of that, again, has archaeological overtones. Your niche, Eric, and the one that you and your colleague, Greg, came to sort of uh, command was a uh-huh. was it was an interesting uh, aspect of this domain of VR and digital elements, wasn't it? It was sort of a, uh, as you say, the natural world and dealing with elements of that in a in a rather different way. Correct? Yeah, I I, I think so. There there's there's a, a few individuals, and I only say a few worldwide that are trying to capture the natural world with a lot of veracity and. Uh, authenticity. In other words, what, what I'm doing now is actually 180 degrees from what I did in features, where we were, again, working in fiction and, and kind of fantasy. And now I'm trying to do everything I can in the work I do in VR to make it as, as honorable to the real world as possible and try to minimize the sense of the electronic and uh, the intervention of technology. So I'm trying to to give the viewer as close an approximation of actually being present on site. As we talk a bit more about VR, I can explain why what we do is a bit unique. And there, but there's a few people undertaking this. But but yeah, we're one of the very few 
um, I would say at this point. And it actually relates to the same techniques that archaeologists use with photogrammetry. It's just we are approaching it as more of a site capture, kind of full environmental capture as opposed to artifact documentation. So I think for the for people that are listening, maybe uh, if you would talk about the definition of what VR is and what photogrammetry is as well, that would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So virtual reality, of course, started, uh, I think really kind of came up in public uh, awareness or culture probably about 20 years ago, and it was linked to some some really awful Hollywood films. And uh, the funny story I have about that, I think Keanu Reeves is in a few of these, but at some point, uh, and this is before The Matrix, but I did get a phone call from uh, The Matrix's production while I was at Walt Disney. And they said, Eric, we love your environments that you create. We'd love to have you work with us on a, on a big, you know, monumental effects film. I said, well, what is that? And they said, well, it's a virtual reality movie with Keanu Reeves. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I don't know about that. Um, I said, send me some images and I'll, I'll take a look. And they did. And some of them looked interesting. Others were kind of questionable. And I, 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 you know, uh, declined, uh, cordially declined the opportunity to work in the matrix. And then of course, when I went to see the film uh, in the opening, I was quite uh, depressed that I had turned that down, (laughs) but, uh, just goes to show you can't, you can't judge, you know, a film, uh, by its script or really initial artwork or anything. Right. But, but, but anyways, that being said, so VR was kind of related to this, this fantasy world of the, again, electronic kind of this uh, futurist, you know, aesthetic and manifesto and so forth. And it w- had nothing to do with the, the natural world back then. And then, of course, the technology was was being created, but it was, you know, out of sight for any kind of consumer use. It was $60,000 for a headset, even a basic one at that point. Wow. Um, and, you know, today we're now down to a few hundred dollars for something that far exceeds what they had 20 years ago. So, so different. So, yeah, so it, it democratized at some point. Eric, let's hold that thought for a moment. And in the you know next segment, we can really focus and sort of drill down into what is VR and okay. what, what are the methods and what are the particular elements that you, you have used and can use to uh, model the natural world. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30 percent off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field then check out an introduction to paleo radiography a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines created by archaeologist radiographer and lecturer james elliott the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education it is approved by the chartered institute for archaeologists as four hours of training that's in the uk for those of you that don't know so don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development for more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. 
Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode two. And we are speaking with Eric Hansen. And Eric, I got to tell you, we haven't interviewed too many guests with an IMDb profile, but I was just looking you up in the last segment. And uh, it's pretty impressive, I got to say. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's rather limited compared to many, but, you know, but I, uh, I had my few years. <laughs> I mean, the limited, it might be limited. There's not too many things on there, but the ones on there are mostly movies that I recognize, which is pretty impressive for the movie world, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm happy with the credits that I had. That's that's for sure. They, they can go. be a lot worse. That's for sure. I That was the big art was trying to, to pick, you know, with precision, what projects you were going to donate your, you know, your year to. So <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Don't all get right. a big... Don't get a big head, Eric. Uh, you know, you you think you're all that in a bag of, <laughs> bag of chips, right? <laughs> oh, no. No problem there. Oh, God. That's so, right. You're in an archaeology podcast now. We're going to have to add that to your profile. Then it'll really right. launch yeah, you that, into the stratosphere. That's going to really launch you into the stratosphere. That's why I'm here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All well, right, Alan, you back. want to pick up where we left off? Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the uh, Rock Art Show, the Rock Art Podcast. And we have Eric Hansen, one of the uh, pioneers and one of the world's uh, foremost experts on the use of virtual reality, both in the historic preservation, uh, the cultural resources realm, and to tell compelling stories using some of the most cutting edge novel technology that's ever been developed. Eric, if you could continue with your discussion and maybe uh, give us a thumbnail sketch of what VR is, what the techniques are, what photogrammetry is, and how we could possibly use that, and what that is useful for vis-a-vis working in the realm of archaeology, anthropology, historic preservation, and public interpretation. How's that? Yeah. That's, that's perfect. 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 So um, we'll just, uh, where we left off was we were talking about how kind of non-real world VR was at the outset. And then now that it's returned, it kind of came back about, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago. And uh, it was because of the proliferation of cell phones. So cell phone devices have what are called inclinometers. So they know, you know, you've used them as compasses, so they know which way they point and then uh, or angled. And then they also have high density displays. And these are the two things that actually the the old $60,000 headsets had that are now in everyone's pocket. So there was an individual, uh, Mark Bolas at USC, who uh, had a light bulb moment. And he said, look, we could bring VR back again and democratize it because the technology is cheap and it's proliferated on, into everyone's hands. So he developed a thing called Google, Car- well, actually it was not called Google Cardboard at the time, it became known as that. But it was basically a cardboard device that held lenses and you could put your phone in it and then use it as a rudimentary headset. And he open source that, democratized it, Google picked it up, they proliferated it uh, quite a bit, probably about six, seven years ago. And then a company named Oculus uh, began also related to Mark's research. And now there's a whole industry, which is actually very vital. There's tens of millions of headsets that have been created and it's in the public. And uh, all I can say about, I don't need to go into all the details about that evolution other than it's gotten very accessible. But unfortunately, well, let's see, how should I put this? So far, the commercial uh, growth has been linked to a lot of gaming applications and kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of been an outgrowth of 
or an extension of computer gaming, because uh, some of the technology used is the same that uh, computer gaming uses. And that's actually what I'm using now for uh, archaeology purposes. Well, well, Eric, let me let me jump in for a moment, because I was totally green, knew nothing about this technology at all. I'm 67 years young. And you put a headset on me. I remember in the San, in the Santa Monica office, and I was blown away. I was like shocked and in another world. The, the resolution and the way in which you move one's head, it's like you're walking, you know, there at uh, Stargate, working in the mode of 3D, three-dimensional. It's just s- such high resolution, such amazing accuracy and so realistic that it, it fools your mind and you, you're just you're thrown into a different place and time by putting on a headset. And it really is, is just shocking. Well, let me, let me interject that, you know, if, if any of the listeners have, have experienced VR, many of the public have experienced VR at a rudimentary level, and that's using the cell phone type devices, which is the one thing I just want to, there's, there's really two things to talk about or two kind of arcs here. One of them is, the, the way that VR is now addressing the real world as opposed to the fictitious. Number two is the, the way the tech has advanced to make you feel startlingly present. And that wasn't always the case. So, um, and that's what I'll describe very quickly here, is that uh, the cell phone level VR is really something that has what we call orientational freedom, meaning your cell phone knows angle, but it doesn't know where it's located in space. It obviously knows based on GPS coordinates, but that's too coarse. So if we're talking about moving your phone an inch or two, um, it has no way to determine that, but it does know angle. So if we, so VR as it came back, became, uh, began as what, uh, this, the technical term for this is three degrees of freedom, meaning it can rotate in X, Y, and Z. And so 360 filmmaking uh, was kind of the beginning or the kind of resurgence, fueled the resurgence of VR. And I participated in that. We actually did, uh, actually I did a, a elaborate film on Machu Picchu for a leading company that made 360 cameras. Uh, these are uh, arrays of like, we had 24 separate uh, video cameras on a big ball, look like a small nuclear reactor or something. And uh, <laughs> it made a lot of people look very closely at it. But we took that down to Machu Picchu and did a nice film on, on that bit of that story, some of the archaeological stories there. We went to some other sites in Peru. So that was, and this this kind of was the, the early part. And when I say early, I'm only talking about six, seven years ago. And that fueled the industry. But again, what changed it was the introduction of gaming engines. And this is a way that, um, and this is what you were talking about, Alan, your response that you had is based on what's called six degrees of freedom. And in that case, that is, uh, that's a way that the headset can actually be, you know, as you move your body or your head slightly, it will respond and make you feel like you're really present, which three degree doesn't do. So simple filmmaking uh, just didn't quite cut it. And most of the public has seen that and they don't think it's that, inter- it's kind of novel, but it's not that compelling. But we had what I call my Watson Bell moment. And this is about five or six years ago. And we had built, uh, uh, Greg, my business partner had been over to a uh, archeological site in Egypt 
on the Nile. He's working with National Geographic on a, uh, a diving expedition into the Nile. And he visited this small cave or kind of a, it was a, uh, I guess, a tomb. And then uh, right over the Nile did photogrammetry, which we'll get right into. And then uh, we had a three-dimensional model of this. And then somebody said, you should put it in a gaming engine. And we did that. And it was, I put the headset on and it was something I'd sent chills down my spine and it was everything I've ever wanted in my apogee of my career. I just, I, that was like everything I'd done in my lifetime was of the past. This was the way forward. And to this day, and this was six years ago and every single day I've pretty much worked on this type of tech and I'm still as thrilled now as I was six years ago. So I find it absolutely stunning and i think that's why that, that's why you uh, had indicated that alan that it had such an effect on you well what the the effect i think eric so i can explain that is when you're wearing this headset certainly as you move your head it moves as though you are there in that environment also if you turn around it shows you what is in the behind you uh, above you below you uh, in front of you. And the resolution is so fabulous that you believe and feel that you are exactly immersed in that environment. But you know, you know, I'll tell you, I'm not going to get very technical here because we don't need to talk about that, but let me tell you why, why it doesn't. It's actually not the resolution. Um, the resolution has gotten fairly good, but the, uh, the thing that you were subconsciously being affected by, which you may not be aware of, is a thing called parallax. So okay. as you shift your, your weight in your chair, or you as you speak, you're moving your head slightly in space, you're getting different perspective, uh, a shift in perspective in uh, your visual cortex. So in other words, um, your things are moving relative to each other um, as you exist in the world. 360 filmmaking, the earlier type of VR, didn't have that. So it's like you could look around, but if you moved your head, it didn't respond. And that's, again, where gaming technology comes in, these gaming engines, is that it will render in real time and such that as you move your head around, and the headsets, of course, have to be able to, to know this, your head movement, um, it'll respond and it'll make you feel like, wow, I'm really present in this space because I'm getting parallax um, that's being delivered to my neural system. And it's just incredibly compelling. It's kind of like how we, we perceive ourselves in the world every second of the day. And VR comes in and kind of plugs into that, at least this type of six degree freedom VR, plugs into that and just makes you kind of believe very viscerally that you're present somewhere. Now, of course, if you're in an archeological site, it's a remarkable thing because you yeah. can begin to explore the site. You can get down and look at putt shards. You can you know, do any number of experiential things. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my colleagues at USC is doing a, uh, working in bear's ears as I have been doing. And he, uh, he's, but he's very concerned with like the whole processional aspect of the original occupants and kind of like how the design was laid out in these uh, cliff dwellings that, but more from a processional or kind of experiential phenomenological aspect. And uh, whereas I'm kind of taking a smaller area and just making it exceedingly uh, detailed. So there's a lot of very, very fascinating, innovative things that really hardly anyone has tapped into yet. So very exciting stuff right now. Yeah, I can understand that, Eric. It's, it's amazing. 
So we just uh, spoke of uh, the experiential power that this technology has given us. But the thing that makes it, I think, really stunning, and this is the, the area that I'm working in, is, again, conveying the real world. I would say eight, oh God, I don't know, probably 98% of VR, uh, at least commercial content, and even non-commercial, is related to showing fictitious artistic worlds. And again, there's a place for that. That's what I uh, teach and instruct in at USC. But with the advent of photogrammetry, that has changed everything, at least for me personally. And again, when we got this Egyptian tomb in the headset, it just, all of a sudden, it wasn't synthetic. It was absolutely uh, viscerally real. And again, you could feel like you existed in the space. You could move around in spec. You could feel the light. You could feel the, the presence. As a matter of fact, I even inject air particles in the uh, the work I do now. So you see little dust motes in front of you, and it just really <laughs> feels like you're there. So there's uh, a number of little tricks like that. But wow. um, so anyway, so photogrammetry is a, is been around for a little. Actually, it's been around for a very long time. I lecture about that. It actually uh, helped world uh, win World War II. There's a Nova episode that talks about how photogrammetry was allowed aerial photographers to get past uh, camouflage. But basically, it's just a reconstruction from either two or more cameras or images uh, to reconstruct uh, topogra- uh, topology or geometry, uh, formal form. So when you do this and you say topology and 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 the forms, is it is it sort of setting up almost like a three-dimensional map or a three-dimensional kind yeah, of that's topographic right. setting of what we're doing and that allows it to be created? Is it like a well, 3D effort? Yeah, there's, and again, there's just like I was talking about VR, there's old school and new school. Okay. Old school was optical and film driven, and it was mostly used, again, by cartographers and aerial photography specialists. Um, I see. A lot of map making kind of applications, not so much ground based work. Computational photography, which we work in a lot, is again using computation with digital photography. That has expedited this, this reinvigoration of the field, and it's now just wildly advanced because of that. And um, so now with digital photography, and it can be as simple as actually even using a cell phone. I've seen amazing photogrammetry from a cell phone. But if we apply high resolution DSLRs to the game and we uh, think about our methodology and so forth, um, using drones, using uh, poles and any kind of arrays of cameras, there's any number of ways to approach it. You can get work that is in a reconstructed three-dimensional model of a site that is you know, accurate down to the millimeter and the visual resolution is as at the same veracity as your or acuity, I should say, as a, a digital photograph. And if you have a 60 megapixel uh, back, then you'll get you know that level of detail in the work. So you can get staggering resolution and uh, geometry from this. Now, of course, that by itself is that's not news to archaeologists. This is the you know archaeology is one of the fields that has embraced photogrammetry probably more so than most actually these days. So the, I'm not speaking of anything that probably your audience doesn't know of. But uh, the difference, I would say, would be to then take that into a gaming engine and put it in a real a VR headset and allow you to be present back on the site. And that's, that's the thing that is a little bit different for what we're doing. There's academics out there doing it, but what an archaeologist wants and needs is a little bit different from what 
you know, what my goals are. But think- there's enough commonality between the two goals that I've had very fruitful collaborations with archaeologists over and over, over the years. And I'm having that right now, too. So, Eric, that's wonderful. Thanks. Thanks so much for, for sharing the methodology of how you go about it. And in our next, uh, next part of this discussion, we're going to give you some examples of some actual case studies and some of the projects that Eric has been involved in. So stay tuned. Thank you. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to the podcast. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm both the founder and president of the California Rock Art Foundation. And we have with us today, Eric Hansen, one of the uh, really dynamic people who are behind uh, the use of virtual reality in the field of anthropology, archaeology, and cultural resource management. Eric, good to have you back again. Why don't we uh, talk about some of the current work you're doing and projects you've completed and uh, share with our audience the way in which you're using VR in a very innovative way. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, I think uh, probably the way to pick that up would be uh, the work that we began to do as we left feature film, uh, Greg and I, as we looked for ways to utilize computer graphic technology and early photogrammetry. This is kind of just pre-VR to natural subjects. So we uh, actually were innovators with a thing called Gigapixel, photography, so uh, where we use hundreds or thousands of images to do just extraordinary resolution. And rock art has always been just a, a passion subject for mine to experience and to record. So we began to visit different rock art sites with gigapixel configurations and equipment. And uh, we, we did just a number of different pieces and we're kind of known to have kind of opened up the production side of, of that enterprise or that field. Eric's for the for the audience, when you said gigapixel and hundreds and thousands of images, how the heck do you get those numbers of images? Well, you need we this we worked with Microsoft on this actually in the early days, and it's a it's a use a robotic device to 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 enable the precision. It's like puzzle pieces. So rather than put a wide angle lens on, you'd put a long telephoto and dice it up into a matrix grid or kind of an array of images. But they, uh, if you want gigapixel, the lens has to be small enough where the rotations become very small, and you need a robotic device to begin to uh, to assemble them or take them. So that's kind of a lot of the the early R and D work that we did. As I say, we we always do a lot of kind of innovation R and D in in the practice. So in any nice. case, but this is uh, leading me into the rock art. So we uh, I had seen images of a thing that has gone by different names, but I think it's commonly known as Shaman's Panel down in the Grand Canyon in the Toro Weep area. So we went and uh, shot that in gigapixel resolution. Actually, we shot the Great Gallery also in Canyonlands as well. So a number of different rock art subjects. And this is right before photogrammetry, again, kind of revolutionized and got really, really good. Uh, And then we began, that work became public and uh, recognized by some archaeologists. And we've worked with uh, archaeologists from UCLA, in teaching at USC, I work with Lynn Dodd a lot. And, um, and so just one thing builds upon another, and it's all been interesting word of mouth kind of relationships that we have. 
so it started with rock art and then um then as photogrammetry and vr kind of all this and drone tech and camera tech all got really good together and that's the amazing thing about this moment in time is all these areas of tech that don't really consider each other they all just got remarkably good and of course that all feeds together to create you know the amazing opportunities we can do now in a headset with photogrammetry and in archaeology so in any case then we began to again I, I told you the story of the egyptian tomb but that then got us highly motivated to again capture uh, native sites and different cultural heritage rock art etc Greg did a big trip with Joanne Van Tilburg down at Easter Island, and we've worked with Geographic on other things. So we've, you know, just began to just kind of embrace archaeology as a is a perfect application of the techniques that we've developed to capture environments um, at this, you know, high, and actually Greg's new company is called Hyperacuity, which is, you know, the is like seeing. We, this has been our obsession is getting detail that's finer than the human eye can see. As a matter of fact, we used to follow charts on that with Gigapixel that we would go down to an acuity level that's, you know, that you could never see with the naked eye. And that's where we wanted to be. So we uh, and we, we've applied that to macro photography, Gigapixel macro and uh, it's so forth. And now we're developing ways in VR to, again, do this very, very high resolution of capture. And we just getting over to projects. Um, we've been on a project for the last uh, probably three years now with the Dunhuang Foundation, which is a U.S. foundation headed up by Mimi Gates, uh, Bill's stepmother, I believe. And uh, she is a, has a Ph.D. in Asian art. And uh, one of the, the legendary sites in Asian art is the Megal Caves in the Gobi Desert. So we were hired to do very high-resolution capture of these caves and bring it into a VR headset uh, to enable the public to feel present and to be able to explore this amazing artwork, which is just incredibly spectacular and uh, and highly detailed. So we did some very special techniques on that capture, and we, we've been doing this for a few years now. It's an ongoing project. And that is, again, trying to pull together all of the techniques that we've, we've done in R&D. What kinds of places are these in uh, China? You said that they were have incredible artwork. How old are they? Uh, what what religious tradition are they? I always kind of relate it to China as Machu Picchu that any Chinese national knows about. Very few Americans outside of, I'm sure uh, many of your listeners know about the Miguel Caves, but the general public uh, just has no awareness of it, nor did I, I must admit, till I uh, we took this job on. And it's a, uh, it's was on the Silk Road. Um, it's in the Gobi Desert. It's in far northwest China. It's just under Mongolia and next to Kazakhstan. And it's a uh, beautiful site, kind of in, in a desert uh, sand dune environment with a cliff. And there's five, actually 700 uh, Buddhist art caves, uh, shrines that have been built into in a long line along this hill this uh this cliff and uh they date back to i think oh god quite i don't know up to say 1200 years probably further throughout all the different dynasties so it's a phenomenal site and we've captured i think seven of them so far and we have an amazing experience in a vr headset where you can pick and choose where you want to go and be able to walk around in these caves and And what would someone see when they're wearing their vr headset when they go in one of these caves 
would be very similar to what you would see as a visitor. We, they, we had special access, so they pulled out all the protective panels, and um, we've actually recreated it with artificial illumination, like you had a torchlight entering the cave, where it'd be like an early discoverer might see the cave. So we've done things that are very real world, and we've also tried to do, uh, we've shown a deconstruction of some of the Buddha sculptures that are in there to show how the materials were, or how the sculptures were assembled. And uh, doing things with computer graphics in a, a novel, novel way, but again, giving the viewer a deeper understanding and appreciation of where they are, and also letting them see novel points of view. And that's one thing that, that is true in all the work that we're doing is that VR, when you capture a natural site in VR, it's, it's stunning just to be present there. But um, what's really amazing is, uh, wouldn't it be nice if we had scaffolds here? Or wouldn't it be nice if, you know, I could hang from the ceiling of Carlsbad Caverns, you know, in a 200-foot ceiling? Wouldn't it be nice if I could get up by the ceiling and look down? You can do that in VR if you've captured it appropriately. So in other words, there is no gravity, there's no physicality for the, where the viewer or the camera is. So you can perceive things in very, very unique and powerful ways. And you can also scale the uh, content too. So we do a lot of things with scale, where we'll scale it down to dollhouse scale and real world, and it gets magical when you do that because the real world becomes this kind of precious, like just amazingly rich, detailed thing when you play with scale. Conversely, we've taken structures like the sand tooth at Mono Lake, scaled them up to be 100 feet tall when in fact they're two feet tall. And now you're getting the view of being a small insect or something. But if the detail is there, it really feels like an enormously grand monumental landscape. So in other words, you can go microscopic or macroscopic. And so if, so if someone wants to analyze the details, the infinitesimal yeah. details, they can see that. Or if they want right. to look at the grand scale, they can do that as well. It's an experiential uh, uh, technique, I, I would say, but there, no doubt, um, archaeologists would find ways to uh, utilize scale in, for research purposes as well, I have no doubt. So you were saying the next thing is you went to, uh, I think it was Arizona, and did some archaeological work, did you not? Yeah, so this is a, a current project that um, has just been hugely enjoyable as well. And this is working with a woman named Elizabeth Kahn. She has a foundation here in uh, Los Angeles called the Onward Project. And this is a, uh, she was, I think, at the Getty for years and connected with uh, UCA, UCLA archaeology. This is a basically trying to, she was approached by a Navajo woman years ago who was involved in the Rainbow Bridge Monument Valley expedition of the 30s. And this is a man named Ansel Hall funded that. And uh, he was one of the early, I think, chief naturalists of the National Park System. And he left and funded this expedition that went on for years. It's a very interesting, you know, bit of history, but it doesn't seem to be that well known. So Elizabeth is taking it upon herself to kind of rekindle the memories and the, the discoveries of this project and bring it not only to fellow archaeologists or the public, but mostly to bring it to the Navajo uh, communities. So she'll go and put up these tents and show all the rich research, and this has been going on for years, all these historic photographs, and then uh, people in the, the uh, Navajo community will find their their uh, relatives, because uh, this is, you know, less than 100 years ago, 
and um, they'll be fascinated by it. So she uh, is doing a, a very valuable thing by, again, honoring this great expedition and uh, bringing it, uh, making it uh, of you know relevant to our current time. Well, what's what's very important about that, Eric, is is mm-hmm. that to the native people and connecting back and seeing their relatives is enormously emotionally uh, very very uh, important and significant and touches their heart. And I know that yeah. working with indigenous people with with native people, if you can bring to life their ancestors and their heritage. And acknowledge it in a, you know, in a in a specific way that that recognizes and venerates this remarkable heritage. It has tremendous positive implications, and shows the uh, it shows you're recognizing the value and importance of their contributions. That's right. She also the other uh, brilliant thing that she's. Uh, realizes using uh, current technology like photogrammetry and VR to help the cause. So now she's bringing out VR headsets when she uh, goes to these Navajo events and lets people experience uh, uh, these sites that they may not have visited. And these are in northern Arizona on Navajo land uh, and a canyon named Segi Canyon. And there's a number of sites there. This is, as you may know, this is close to Navajo National Monument. So we've uh, had a relationship with the Navajo Nation and uh, a particular family who is based out of Segi and uh, was part, uh, their, their forebears were the ones who guided the expedition back in the 30s. So we have revisited these sites and I've done photogrammetric capture of these sites. Again, the first time I put the headset on at one of these sites, I just got chills. It was like just an amazing thing to be able to go to an accurate, uh, you know, a, a uh, authentic archaeological site rather than a sanitized one, um, which I was kind of used to. And the pre- and the preservation in this, the quality of the sites are remarkable, are they not? Oh yeah, they're they're, they're just iconic. Yeah. So these are uh, we put together. Or we're actually still working right now on a large uh, installation project for this. Um, we were going to debut it at Mountain Film Fil- Film Festival this year in May, but of course that got canceled with everything else. We will be there next year showing it and you'll be able to visit three sites in the canyon and uh, be able to explore. Now, I've just released a commercial product called, yeah, that's right, but you can actually see these now. I released uh, just two weeks ago a commercial product called uh, Blue Planet VR, and this is on all the VR kind of commercial portals, but uh, we've included three of those in the collection. Okay, and. In the last couple of minutes of our uh, show, we only have a very, very short, maybe two or three minutes left. Could you maybe uh, encapsulate some of the work that you're currently doing? Well, that's right. And then the other, uh, so that the on, uh, all the, these projects I'm talking about are ongoing, but you and I, of course, are have big plans to, uh, to do work in the COSO region with a lot of rock art uh, that is there. Um, I think, as you may recall, we met at Little Pet uh, Canyon. I went on one of your tours. So we are currently undertaking a project with uh, for the city of Ridgecrest for a visitor center, gateway center that they will build. And, um, of course, Ridgecrest celebrates rock art tremendously because of Little Pet Canyon. So over the next uh, month or two, we will be shooting sites in that region and then having the visitors that uh, wander into the center be able to experience some of these remote sites 
and see the heritage that exists in the area. And I guess you you also even uh, went down on a little little cultural tour, didn't you, down to Baja? Well, again, thanks to uh, to Craft uh, and the wonderful tours that that you have been instrumental in setting up. I joined a, a trip down to uh, Santa Teresa Canyon down in Baja and began to uh, capture a lot of the, the phenomenal artwork down there. And that is actually, that is embedded in the uh, Blue Planet uh, title also. And I put some, uh, again, trying to capitalize on what you can do in VR that you can't do in the real world. So in that case, you can scale the artwork down, closely inspect it. You can uh, elevate it to where we can, you know, you can get a better uh, understanding or kind of appreciation or study of it. So there's a number of things uh, that, again, we're trying to do that are unique in the way that you experience and or study a site. Fantastic, Eric. Thank you so much. This has been a fabulous hour. It went, it went so fast and you've, you've helped us really uh, understand and appreciate some of the phenomenal work you're doing. And I'm so appreciative that you took the time and energy to uh, share that with us for the Archaeology Podcast Network and the Rock Art Podcast. Thank you, Eric Hansen, for spending an hour. You bet. And let me get, if all of this is viewable, it's one thing to talk about it, but if you'd like to see some of this, you can go to blueplanetvr.com and all of those projects are documented um, on the site. So Excellent. Thank you, Eric. You bet. Absolutely. My pleasure. See you all next week in the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.